0: Well, all good stories require two elements. The story itself, good content, and the narrator, good communication of it. Good storytellers know how to use language, repetition, humor, and other devices effectively to communicate their story in a way that's memorable, enjoyable, even didactic. In our current sermon series, The Life of David, Volume 1, we have both a good story and a masterful storyteller. And while I believe this is not only a story, but is also God's word to us, I do find it refreshing to look at these stories through that lens. Suddenly, the Bible doesn't seem so archaic. I see my own dysfunction in the lives of the characters. I trace their struggles and their faith, and I am challenged as well as comforted. By way of review, we're looking at the life of King David, Israel's greatest king, his entire story is told in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, but in this series we're looking at just volume 1, David's rise to power. David's rise to power is concurrent with the current king's decline, King Saul. And as such, it's a commentary on leadership, character, and what it means to start and end well. Saul's disobedience precipitates God's anointing of David to serve as king, but it will take 20 years For Saul's career to wind down. And it will require a lot of trust on David's part. Last week, for example, in 1 Samuel 18, we saw Saul attempt on several occasions to kill kill David because he was jealous of his military success and popularity among the people. If today's story were a one-hour episode in the life of King David, we could title it The Nine Lives of David, although it's actually seven. Today, there are multiple attempts on David's life, and God protects him from all of them using both direct intervention of people and divine intervention of the Spirit. For the sake of time, I'll summarize some parts, and I'll also make some comments along the way, but you are welcome to follow along with the whole story, 1 Samuel 19, verses 1 to 24. It's page 407 in your pew Bibles. This episode can be broken down into four scenes. Scene one. The scene opens with a death order. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Saul's intent to kill David has escalated. Last week, he was relying on more subtle ways of murdering David, like using his daughters as bait and making the agreed-upon bride price the lives of 100 Philistines in the hopes he'd die in battle. I have to say, if you're willing to make your daughter a widow so you can eliminate a rising star young punk, you've got issues. But now, Saul doesn't care who knows his intentions. He wants David dead. Needless to say, this is stressful for David. It's hard watching your back all the time in the royal court when numerous soldiers would love to ingratiate themselves to the king by taking you out. The text continues... But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and tell you what I find out. Jonathan, unbeknownst to the king, is actually partial to David, even though Saul is his father. And he tells David, let me talk to him. So the next morning, Jonathan carefully chooses his words for the morning stroll with the king. John's gonna say more about this next week when we look at Jonathan and David's friendship, but this is remarkable. Jonathan not only abandons family loyalty here to protect David, he also abandons self-promotion because he's next in line for the throne. Apparently, Jonathan's had some mediation training because he's successful. He makes a compelling argument in verses 4 to 5, emphasizing how David has helped Saul and concludes, why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Verse 6, Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Now this may sound all well and good, but you may recall... Saul is notorious for making haphazard and ill-advised oaths that he doesn't then keep. And let's be honest, doesn't it kind of undermine the integrity and credibility of someone when you have to swear not to murder an innocent person? The narrator is setting the stage for what happens next. Verse 7, so Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before, meaning David, the harp-playing warrior, is now back doing music therapy for the unstable king who, in last week's episode, tried to hurl, hurl the at him two times. Is anyone else uncomfortable with this? Scene two. As expected, Saul's oath is short-lived. Verses eight to ten. Once more, war broke out, and David went out to fight the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord, I'll come back to this in a few minutes, came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. If you were with us last week, you'll know that when verse 8 talks about David striking the Philistines with success... The subtext is really David's military success incites jealousy and anger in Saul. David had both the popular vote, Israel loved him, and divine approval too. The Lord was with him. And even though his victories benefit Saul and his kingdom, Saul is too ruled by anger, fear, and jealousy to see straight. His anger incites violence. David's not a top warrior for nothing, like Rocky Balboa, who learned to move quickly in the ring by chasing chickens, David has gained his agility by fighting lions and bears as a lowly shepherd. He dodges the spear and runs away. Scene three. Here's where you feel like you flip flipped channels and you're now watching telenovela. Jonathan is direct and persuasive with rhetoric. Mikhail, Saul's daughter, is indirect and cunning with deceit but nonetheless effective. David apparently runs to his house to make a game plan with his wife. Verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Something is really wrong when God's chosen king must crawl through a window to save his life. But wait. It gets better. Verse 13. Then Mikhail took an idol and laid it in the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair on its head. <laughs> there it is, the first dummy in the Bible. You thought you came up with that trick to uh, sneak out at night by putting something in the bed. You didn't. It's from the Bible. What makes this even more comical is that the dummy is made out of an idol, which was explicitly forbidden. What is this doing in Michael's possession anyway? We aren't told that. We're just told that this idol, which is good for, it's not good for anything, it is, it is not full of life, it's nothing compared to the real God, is actually quite useful on this one occasion. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Mikhail said, he is ill. <laughs> the soldiers must be operating under some ancient code of honor, which prohibited them from killing a defenseless sick man. So they go and tell Saul, David can't come and get murdered. He's not feeling well. (laughs) Verse 15, then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. Forget honor, we're murdering someone here. Bring him in his bed and all. So when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and the head was some goat's hair. Yeah, try being the one who has to tell Saul that. Some poor soldier has to relay this news to Saul and he sends for his daughter, fuming. Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Mikhail told him, he, David said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? Okay, the parent in me wants to say, kids, do not try this at home. Do not lie to your parents like Mikhail does. Now, the narrator doesn't comment on Mikhail's lie. She's probably lying out of fear her father will kill her for aiding and abetting. It's probably a legitimate fear. Can you imagine how the involvement of his own children against him intensifies Saul's anger? Now, what is so ironic about this, about Michal's role in protecting David, is that Saul only had her marry David so she'd be a pawn in having him killed. His exact words in 1821 are, I will give her to him he thought so that she may be a snare to him unfortunately for Saul's sake whatever he does to try and kill David just backfires on him that's got to be pretty frustrating and you can just feel his anger here with against Mikhail. finally scene 4 this is where David this is where we pick up David crawling out of the window verse 18 When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah, two miles away, and told him all that Saul had done. I bet he went to see Samuel. Samuel's the one who got him into this mess, who anointed him as king. Samuel's leading a group of interns, training to become prophets. David needs some advice and assurance. Are you sure I'm supposed to be king? Because I've avoided like five assassination attempts already. I can't keep this up. I so wish we had a record of their entire conversation. Unfortunately, that scene got deleted when it was finally put together. But Saul's intelligence network is strong. He discovers David's location and immediately dispatches a group of henchmen to kill David. Verse 20, but when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel there as their leader, the spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. We don't know exactly what this entailed, but most likely they fell into some entranced state and behaved in a way that broke the pattern for normal, acceptable behavior for king's soldiers. And the point is, when this happens, the henchmen are no longer able to do what they came to do. They are so overcome by God's spirit that they either forget what their job was or they can't fathom doing it because they're caught up praising God. Either way, Saul is told about it and dispatches a second set of assassins. And straight like a scene from the Three Stooges or Groucho Marx, the same thing happens to them. So he sends a third set of assassins and they too prophesy. How ironic. Instead of David becoming overwhelmed by the three different sets of death squads, the spirit of God overwhelms the henchmen. Stopping them from murdering God's chosen king. Well, this infuriates Saul. If you want to do something right, do it yourself. Verse 22 Finally, he himself left for Ramah, which, by the way, is where Saul was first anointed by Samuel to become Israel's first king. Saul gets there, intent to kill David once and for all. Verse 23. But the spirit of God came even on him and he walked along prophesying. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Whatever happens to those three sets of assassins, it happens to Saul too and then some. He's not only stopped from killing David, he strips off his outer garments. He's not fully naked here, but he is without his kingly robes for 24 hours. So the closing scene is this symbolic image of the king being stripped of his robes by God's power. And the image is unmistakable. Saul isn't really king anymore. Or, as one commentator put it, this once. Great man, still tall, but no longer great, clearly not in control, shamed, now rendered powerless in a posture of submissiveness. But it's even more poignant when we contrast it with the only other instance of Saul prophesying, which is immediately after Samuel anoints him as king, back in 1 Samuel 10 10 to 11. When Saul and his servant arrived, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who'd formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that's happened? Is Saul also among the prophets? This is masterful storytelling. The same question asked, but with two very different tones. In the first instance, it's the very beginning of Saul's career, just after his anointing. Is Saul also among the prophets? Is said with a tone of expectancy and anticipation. Can you believe it? This guy has been given authority by God's spirit to serve as king. How exciting. In the second instance, it's the very end of Saul's career when he's been disrobed and for all intents and purposes dethroned. This time, Is Saul also among the prophets? Is asked with head-shaking pity. How sad that it takes God's spirit overpowering Saul to do the right thing. What happened to you, Saul? How did you get here? Jealousy and hate have consumed you. Which brings us to the question some of you raised. How can the Spirit of God sometimes allow God to act out of his desires, or allow Saul to act out of his desires and harm David, as in verse 9, and sometimes prohibit Saul from harming David, as in verse 24? I don't have a perfect answer for you, but here's a thought. God gives human beings an astonishing amount of freedom and autonomy to make choices. We may want free will, but as the theologian Karl Barth says, free will is the freedom to become a fool. Meaning we can make good choices, but we also have the capacity for bad choices too. And sometimes when we are making bad choices, God may allow us to experience the consequences of those choices, not in order to punish us, but in the hope that we would see the reality of our choices and how harmful they are to us and would choose differently. Can you really sit by and watch someone you love destroy themselves without trying to help them see what they're doing? That's what God is doing with the evil spirit when he allows Saul to be given over to his own evil desires. Sadly, Saul does not heed the warning even when the intervention is coming from his son and right-hand man. But since God is sovereign, he will only permit human will to go so far. If human plans are seeking to override God's plan, he will intervene, as he does in verse 24, causing his spirit to overpower Saul, preventing him from murder. So that's the story. What does any of that mean for us today? Let's look at the life of Saul first. Saul's story serves as a warning. We see, as David laments in 2 Samuel 1 at Saul's death, how the mighty have fallen, as we witness jealousy and anger growing in Saul like an untreated cancer. He's unstable, irrational, and unfaithful to his vows. In every scene, his obsession with David poisons his relationships and infects everything he does. Sometimes, if we look merely at our outward behavior, we can think we're doing a pretty good job. But our desires are what need to be kept in check, not just our behavior. The New Testament reflects on the slow progression of sin in James 1, 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Left unchecked, our desires and thought patterns can lead to behaviors and patterns we never thought imaginable. That's why the Bible is so adamant about throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Perhaps we would benefit this morning from asking What area in my life am I disobeying God in? What sinful habits or thought patterns have I allowed myself to slide into that, if left unchecked, will lead me down a path I don't want to go? Maybe it's a pattern of speech, telling little white lies or sharp slights of others in their absence. Maybe it's a pattern of discontentment or bitterness or unforgiveness. Maybe it's in the area of sexuality or finances. If you're having trouble identifying an area, probably the people closest to you can tell you. As was the case with Saul, often those around us can see it clearly. We must admit these areas of disobedience and ask for God's help. It is not too late to start over and set a new course. God is all about restoring broken things. It's one of the things he does best. He will give you the resources you need, but you must be willing. David's life, in contrast, serves as an example of trusting God despite stressful circumstances. We don't get a lot of David's internal dialogue from this chapter, but we do in Psalm 59, which he wrote in response to this incident. You are my strength. I watch for you. God, you are my fortress, my God in whom I can rely. I will sing of your strength and your love for you are my refuge in times of trouble. Even though David was chosen as Israel's king, it wasn't handed to him on a silver platter. He had so many challenges and obstacles in the 20-some years it took for him to rise to power. We never stop having to trust God, even when we've been following him a long time, even when things are going well. We might as well get used to that. But trusting God isn't passive. David didn't just trust God when the spear was coming at him. He used his skill and agility, his connections and friends, his wife's quick thinking thinking, and his community, all while putting his trust in God. God wants us to use whatever resources we have at our disposal and at the same time still put our hope and trust in him. I find this a lot harder. Trusting God is not a license not to act. Similarly, as we act, we must keep our trust in God, not in our own efforts. And we do this best when we have community to help us. Did you notice where David ran when he was at the end of his rope? He went to Samuel, the one who'd initiated this whole kingship thing. He went to the company of prophets in the hopes that God might speak clearly to him what he needed to do, what it meant to trust in this time. I tell the participants in our Next Steps class that one hope we have for each person at City Church is that over time, you will have people around you who care for you, who you can run to in a crisis, a Samuel That takes a while to develop, and it takes investment on both sides of the relationship. But that's our hope. We need one another to live out the life of faith. We are not meant to walk this path alone. Saul serves as a warning to not leave sin unchecked. And David serves as an example of trusting God in crisis. But there's one other character we need to look at. He's central, even though he's in the background most of the time. It's God. I mentioned this episode could be titled The Nine Lives of David. David dodges a bullet, or spear in this case, seven times in this chapter. But as was the case with Goliath, it's not really because he's got good connections, or because he's won the heart of the king's daughter, or because of his agility. It's because of God's spirit. God is working behind the scenes protecting him. Did you notice that each time Saul attempts to murder David, the narrator has this wonderful phrase he uses to show no matter how bent on killing David Saul may be, God is more intent on preserving his future king. Scene one, it's but Jonathan in verse one. In scene two, but David in verse 10, but Mikhail in verse 11, and but the spirit of God in verses 20 and 23. This is the blessed but, friends. People may have one agenda, but God has another. And there is no thwarting his plans. He will find a way. He will use whatever means at his disposal to accomplish his purposes friendship, romance, dummies, even. And if all else fails, he'll intervene supernaturally to get the job done. He will not be deterred, he will be faithful to his promise. This is what Job concludes in the midst of his own crisis. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And it's what's behind David's confidence in Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. This is why David puts his trust in God. Because he found him to be trustworthy. Trustworthy. Time and time again, crisis after crisis, God proves himself faithful to David, and God is faithful to us as well. We can put our trust in him. No, that does not mean we always get what we want. Stay tuned to see how David's challenges continue for the next 20 years, but it does mean he is present with us in times of difficulty, and that as we seek him, he will show us the way. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so thankful for the blessed but that no matter what may come our way, you are not deterred in your plans for us. You don't waste what you've given us. You gather it all up as part of your material to use to work out our lives. But if all else fails, you're gonna come through and intervene supernaturally. This is our hope. We trust in you. We are so grateful that you are the rock, the fortress, the refuge we can lean on would you now by your blessed spirit grow seeds of faith and trust in us, not anger, bitterness, and jealousy. May they come to fruition that we may be people whose lives are rooted in you. Come what may. For Jesus' sake, amen.